Hello, I'm Derek Walker, I'm the pastor of the Oxford Bible Church, and we're in a series called Does the Bible Teach a Pre-Tribulation Rapture? And uh, we're, we're talking about the issue because we are getting close, I believe, to the end of the age, to the tribulation, and that's described in the book of Revelation. But the issue is, will, the, will Jesus return for his church before the tribulation, or will we be going through the tribulation um, and experiencing all of that. So that's what we're discussing. At the end of the present church age, there will be a unique time of at least seven years that's called the tribulation. And the second half is called the great tribulation. And it's described in both the Old and New Testaments as the worst time that ever was or ever will be, dominated by the Antichrist. It's also a time of divine wrath and judgment. So it's called the day of the Lord also. The Lord Jesus will bring this time to a close by his return in power and glory. It's my contention that the scriptures reveal that the church will be raptured before this final seven-year period. And that's called the pre-tribulation rapture. And I believe this doctrine comes from taking prophecy in its plain, literal meaning. The Old Testament prophets saw two comings of the Messiah as two mountain peaks in the distance, the lamb first and then the lion, the sufferings and then the glory, his atoning death first to establish the new covenant and then his return as king to establish his kingdom on earth. And these are two very different visions and when you look at two mountains, one behind the other, it's not clear if they're two parts of the same mountain or if they're two separate mountains. And only after climbing the first mountain can you see what valley, if any, is in between. And so in the same way, the prophets saw the sufferings and then the glory, uh, but the time between these two comings of Messiah was not revealed to the Old Testament prophets. The New Testament says this, was a, this time was a mystery hidden in God from the foundation of the world, for what would happen in that time is contingent, was contingent on Israel's decision to accept or reject Christ and his kingdom. God doesn't violate free will. And so when Israel rejected Christ uh, as a nation, Jesus started to reveal the nature of this mystery age through the parables. And that's why the church and the church age is called a mystery in the New Testament. And this mystery includes the rapture of the church, because as it says in 1 Corinthians, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Now, the resurrection of the righteous dead at Christ's return, at, at his coming, is not a mystery. That was clearly prophesied in the Old Testament. But what is new uh, is the rapture of the living, their mortal bodies being changed in, into immortality. Not only was this not prophesied, but it seems to contradict the Old Testament prophecies of the Messianic Kingdom, because if believers, if all the believers are raptured at the start at the Lord's return, then there'll be no believers left to populate the prophesied messianic kingdom. And, and, and all unbelievers will be killed at that time, so there'll be no one left for the, in their natural bodies for this kingdom. The only solution to this paradox is that the second coming of Christ is in two phases. First he comes for his church to take us to be with him in the rapture. Then after a period of time he returns in power to repossess the earth. During this time, 
many will be saved in the tribulation. Especially, you know, when the rapture happens, that would be an, a great sign that would cause many to believe. And uh, those who endure to the end of this terrible time will be those who inherit the messianic kingdom. The, the fact that there are two stages, that shouldn't seem strange in view of the fact that what the, you know, the prophets originally saw Christ's coming. You know, they had a vision of Christ coming and they thought it might all happen roughly at the same time. But actually it turned out to have two stages separated by 2,000 years. So if there are two stages to the second coming, that shouldn't be a surprise. Uh, the same kind of thing has already happened. The prophecies of the Lord's second coming contain very, two very different kinds of description. Some describe him coming in power and glory. Others use the opposite description of the thief in the night, coming suddenly without you know, warning to take the valuables uh, from the house, the believers. And that's a perfect description of the rapture. Actually, Christ is not a thief because he only takes what belongs to him. But to the world, waking up to the disappearance of, let's hope, a, a billion believers, it will seem as if a thief had come. So his, first, so his coming is in two phases. He comes first in the rapture for his church when he catches us up to meet him in the air and secondly he comes with his church when he returns to set his feet on the earth to judge the wicked and establish his kingdom here. And uh, the Bible describes these two stages or manifestations of his glory as the morning star, number one, and number two, the sunrise. 2 Peter 1.19 says, we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until, notice, the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. This describes three lights of God. In this present time, we have the light of his prophetic word shining in our hearts. And Peter says we must live by this word until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. And this speaks of two future, two different future manifestations of Christ's glory, parallel to the sunrise and the appearance of the morning star. Sunrise, of course, is a picture of Christ in his second coming when he will rise and light up the whole world and all will see him in his glory. Malachi 4.2 describes the return of Christ as the rising of the sun of righteousness, radiating the earth with his glory, bringing in the new day, the millennium. But shortly before the dawn, while it's still dark, another light rises into view called the morning star. Actually, it's the planet Venus, which appears as one of the brightest stars heralding the coming dawn. It signifies the sun will soon rise and the new day will begin. It only appears to those who are awake and watching. Thus, it represents a true manifestation to believers only. A manifestation to true believers only. All will see the sun but only some will experience the morning star. After the morning star, the world remains in darkness for a time before the sun rises in its glory. And likewise Christ, our morning star, appears first to those who are ready, then Christ, the Son of Righteousness, will appear to bring in the new day when all will see him in his glory. Revelation 2, 16, Jesus said, I am the bright morning star. So the morning star is a manifestation of the glory of Jesus. Also in Revelation 2.28, Jesus promised believers, I will give him the morning star. 
So this is a special future manifestation of his glory that's only given to believers. These are romantic words of love, for he's saying, as the bridegroom says to the bride, I will give you myself, I am the morning star, I will fill you with my glory. Peter says that the morning star will arise in your hearts. So this is a manifestation of Christ's glory that originates from within the hearts of believers where the Holy Spirit dwells. So while the world is asleep in the darkness before sunrise, when all will see his glory, there will be before that a special manifestation of his glory given to believers only. He'll appear to them as the morning star, and his glory will arise in their hearts. So the morning star is the promise of the glory of Christ manifested to believers and in believers in the rapture, which happens before the second coming. So at the rapture, Jesus will release his glory and resurrection power from within us, Christ in us, the hope of glory. And that will transform our bodies and we will rise to meet him. The same power that raised Christ from the dead, the Holy Spirit, is already in our spirit. And on that day, God will give the command, releasing the morning star glory to surge out of our spirits, through our hearts, transforming our bodies from mortality to immortality. This is the manifestation of the morning star. It'll happen for us in the rapture. And the awesome thing is, it could happen to us at any moment, suddenly, without warning, in the twinkling of an eye. And this is the precious truth of imminence which is only upheld by the pre-trib rapture. The fact that Christ could suddenly come at any moment so that we could be instantly transported to be with him adds extra motivating power to our blessed hope because it's human nature to focus on what's, what's ahead of us, what's imminent. For example, if someone very important to you tells you they plan to visit sometime, but it won't be for a few months, then yes, that will encourage, motivate you, but how much more if they tell you they might come any time? That boosts your expectancy and adds urgency to your preparations, making sure that you and your house are ready. Likewise, believing in the imminent return of Christ adds fuel and urgency to our hope. In this series, I've been making the case for the pre-trib rapture, and I want to conclude this series uh, and continue this series by now answering some counter-arguments. And, and one objection that one hears a lot is, is basically based on the trumpets. It says, since the rapture is at the last trumpet, then people say it follows that it must be the same as the seventh trumpet in Revelation. And, and the seventh trumpet is either at mid-tribulation, that's what I believe, but some think it's right at the end of the tribulation. And so... And others would say the last trumpet must be the great trumpet in Matthew 24, 31, which Christ will blow at his second coming. Either way, this means that the rapture is either mid-trib or post-trib. So that's a major objection that people come up with. Well, first of all, let me say that the last trumpet of the rapture cannot be the seventh trumpet for a number of reasons. First of all, Paul can't, can, can't possibly be referencing the seven trumpets in Revelation because Revelation would not be written for yet another, another 50 years. Second, the seventh trumpet is an angelic trumpet blown by an angel, uh, whereas the rapture trumpet is called the trumpet of God, blown by the God-man Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians says, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. 
and the dead in Christ will rise. Thirdly, the seventh trumpet releases judgments on the world, while the rapture trumpet results in the transformation of the bodies of the saints, and so that they rise up and gather together to meet him. It's totally different. And fourthly, in the plain reading of Revelation, the seventh trumpet is followed by seven bowls of wrath, and, and it's only at the sixth bowl that the armies gathered for, for the Battle of Armageddon. So there must be an, at least a number of months between the seventh trumpet and the second coming. So if the rapture trumpet is the last trumpet, that would actually be an argument against the post-tribulation rapture. Well, the, the great trumpet of Matthew 24:31 at the second coming is more worthy of consideration in terms of it possibly being the last trumpet, the rapture trumpet. It says, Jesus says, He will send his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to another. And men, the post-tribulation believers, they see that as a reference to the rapture of the church. Well, there are some similarities of that verse with the sounding of the rapture trumpet. You know, there's a gathering of God's people at the sound of this trumpet uh, in connection with the coming of the Lord. Uh, but there are also many differences, and the differences are too great to be the rapture of the church that's described in 1 Thessalonians 4. You know, just as there are similarities, say, in describing a bush and a tree, they ha they're similar, doesn't mean that a bush is the same thing as a tree. For example, there's no resurrection or rapture in, Matthew, in the Matthew 24 trumpet blast, um, and that's the essence of the rapture event. Uh, in the rapture, we're not gathered and lifted up by angels, but we are caught up by Christ himself. And uh, what would it say about our glorified bodies if we needed angels to do the lifting? But in the Matthew 24, it says that the angels themselves gather together the elect. But that isn't the case, as I said, within the rapture um, of 1 Thessalonians 4. Most importantly, studying Matthew 24:31 in the light of its Old Testament background, considering how the original hearers would have understood it, those, uh, those who they knew the Old Testament prophecies, unlike most Christians today, uh, it becomes very clear in this verse what Christ is pointing to. That he's pointing to a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. In fact, it's a summary, really, of all the prophets had to say about the final worldwide gathering of Israel to her land. He was saying that this will only be completely fulfilled after the second coming. Um, the regathering of Israel has begun, but it will be completed when Jesus returns. In particular, Jesus identified the trumpet as the great trumpet. That's the key in this verse, which is the key to identifying this event as there is only one other verse in the Bible that speaks of the great trumpet. And that's Isaiah 27. Let's read it. You will be gathered one by one, O you children of Israel. So it shall be in that day that the great trumpet will be blown. They will come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria, outcasts in the land of Egypt, and they will worship the Lord in the holy mount at Jerusalem. This is talking about the great trumpet being blown, gathering Israel back for the millennial kingdom. The Jewish disciples of Jesus would have understood his meaning as the regathering of believing Israel from the nations at his coming. He uses the term elect here 
to emphasize her status as his chosen covenant people. It's talking about Israel, in other words, that he's regathering them in fulfillment of his covenant with Abraham. This, the context confirms that the elect, in verse 31, is Israel. Uh, not only is there a strong emphasis on Israel in, in the lead-up to the second coming, um, in, in Matthew 24, 22, he says, Unless those days are shortened, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. And so, although we can expand the meaning of the elect to all believers, the primary reference has to be to God's elect nation, Israel, because Jesus will return to Israel at Armageddon to save her from the invading armies under Antichrist. And, uh, and, and he's coming to deliver his people Israel. That's why he returns to Israel. And then, having done that, having delivered them, he will then complete her regathering by blowing this great trumpet, gathering them from all nations in preparation for the kingdom. And so God calls Israel his chosen nation, his elect nation. So when the disciples heard Jesus speak of the elect here, in a passage where Israel is everywhere in the context, they would have understood that he was referring to Israel. Now, it's true that the church is also called God's elect in the writings of the apostles, but at this point when Jesus spoke these words, the church was not yet in existence, and the epistles hadn't been written. So literal interpretation demands that the elect in this verse is Israel. So when he talks about the great trumpet gathering the elect from the four corners of the earth, this is talking about the regathering of Israel. It's got nothing to do with the rapture of the church. The regathering of Israel is the subject of a number of Old Testament prophecies which use exactly the same language as Jesus did in Matthew 24:31. The prophets often spoke of Israel and other nations being scattered to the four winds of heaven. The four winds of heaven is a Hebrew idiom meaning the same thing as the four corners of the earth. And speaking of Israel's scattering and later regathering to the land, for instance, Moses says in Deuteronomy 30, If any of you are driven to the furthest parts under heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you. So in Matthew 24, 31, Jesus is confirming that at his second coming, he will fulfill the many Old Testament prophecies that speak of God regathering Israel from the nations who had been scattered to the four winds, to every nation. God declared that in the future, Israel will be gathered from the east, west, north and south, from the ends of the earth. For example, Isaiah 5. He will lift up a banner to the nations from afar. He'll whistle to them, to Israel, from the end of the earth. Surely they will come with speed and swiftly. Zechariah 10, 8, and 8 to 10 also. Isaiah 11, 11 says, on that day the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand the remnant of his people who will remain. And he'll lift up a standard for the nations and assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. It's the same kind of language. So it was prophesied in the Old Testament using exactly the same language that when the Messiah returns, he will blow a great trumpet to call the members of his elect nation Israel, who were still in the nations, to gather them back to his land. Having, having put his feet on the Mount of Olives, Jesus from Jerusalem will blow his great trumpet, and that will be the signal to gather 
his people his, of Israel to himself, to Israel. And so while Matthew 24:31 is not a particularly good fit with 1 Thessalonians 4, it's a perfect fit with Isaiah 27, which speaks of the Messiah regathering Israel from the nations at his coming to earth in power and glory by blowing a great trumpet. So how do we explain Paul's use of the last trumpet in 1 Corinthians 15? I believe we don't have to search for another trumpet in the Bible to explain it because there's a coherent explanation within the text of the two classic rapture passages that speak of trumpets, which is of course 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15. Notice Paul is at great pains to emphasize the fact that the, end, the event initiated by the trumpet of God happens in two stages, involving two groups of saints, those who have died and those who are living. 1 Thessalonians 4. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. It's clear that there's a distinct order here, with the dead in Christ rising first, followed by us who are still alive. It follows that the trumpet of God will be blown twice. The first sounding will resurrect the dead and call them to Christ. Then the second sounding of the trumpet will be to rapture the, the living. And of course, that's the last trumpet. And this agrees with 1 Corinthians 15, which says, Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. Notice it's specifically those who are alive when Christ returns who are changed at the sounding of the last trumpet. What about the dead in Christ who were already been raised by this time? In the, in the next verse, Paul tells us that they too will be raised at the sounding of God's trumpet. It says, for the trumpet will sound, the first trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, incorruptible. And then second, we shall be changed. That's at the last trumpet. Again, he doesn't have to repeat saying the last trumpet because he already said that they will rise uh, at, at the last trumpet in the previous verse. So by combining these two passages, the clear deduction is that Christ will sound his trumpet twice. At the first trumpet, the dead are raised. At the last trumpet, we who are still alive will be changed and raptured. Now, other objections revolve around the meaning of the day of the Lord. For example, in 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul answers the false teaching that the day of the Lord had already come by saying that the day of the Lord will not come until the man of sin, the Antichrist, comes first. Many assume that the day of the Lord is simply when he's manifested in glory. But that's impossible, because that would make a nonsense of these verses. If this false teaching was that Jesus had already appeared in glory, well, that's obviously false. In the Bible, though, the day of the Lord speaks of special times when God intervenes directly in judgment or when God is directly ruling the earth. This means the whole tribulation is part of the day of the Lord, which is exactly what 1 Thessalonians 5 says. It says, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night, for when they say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes on them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. So here Paul identifies the sudden start of the day of the Lord with the start of the labor pains of the tribulation. So he's saying the day of the Lord, the tribulation, begins as a thief in the night. The very symbol used in the Bible for the Lord coming in the rapture. So this is saying the tribulation will begin 
when the rapture happens. Therefore, we should interpret 2 Thessalonians 2 using the same definition of the day of the Lord that Paul gave in 1 Thessalonians. Namely, it is the tribulation. So the false teaching that Paul was rejecting was not that the second coming had not yet come. Um, you know, that's obvious. But that the tribulation had not yet begun. That's what was causing the Thessalonians to be upset. Namely, the report that the day of the Lord, the tribulation, had begun. Which meant that they were having to go through the tribulation and face the Antichrist when they had previously been told by Paul that they'd be raptured before the tribulation. In verse 3, Paul assured them that the tribulation hadn't yet started because the rapture, the departure of the church, had to happen first. And only then would the day of the Lord, the tribulation, begin with the revelation of the Antichrist as he rapidly rises on the world stage on his way to becoming world dictator. So like every normal day, the day of the Lord consists of a period of darkness followed by a period of light. First is the seven years plus of darkness or night called the tribulation, followed by a thousand years of light called the millennium. And 2 Peter 3.10 agrees with this. It says, that, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which, or at the end of which, the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the, uh, the, the earth and the works that are in it will be burnt up. This gives the beginning and the end of the day of the Lord. It begins with the thief in the night, which is the, the rapture, and it ends with the destruction of the universe at the end of the millennium, as described in Revelation 20. And that's confirmed by verse 7. But the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment of perdition and perdition of ungodly men. And so what he describes as the end of the day of the Lord happens after the thousand years. Another common mistake is to confuse the day of the Lord with the great and awesome day of the Lord, which literally means the great and manifest day of the Lord, the day of the Lord's manifestation in glory, which is the second coming. So people point to Joel 2.31, it says the sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And then Matthew 24.29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and so on. In other words, the same signs, they would say, happen at the end of the tribulation, but before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Therefore, the day of the Lord, they say, is right at the end of the tribulation. But this is false logic because it rests on a false assumption that the day of the Lord is the same thing as the great and awesome day of the Lord. In fact, the whole tribulation is part of the day of the Lord, and the tribulation comes to its climax with the great and awesome day of the Lord when Jesus returns in power and glory. So the day of the Lord is not the same as the great and awesome day of the Lord. God bless you. Join with us at Oxford Bible Church every Sunday at 11am Greenwich Mean Time for our live stream service. Or join us at Cheney School, Headington, Oxford, OX3 7QH. You can watch more of our teachings on our Roku channel and Derek Walker's YouTube channel. All Derek Walker's books are available in printed and Kindle versions in all Amazons worldwide or online with other great products where you can also support our programmes at www.oxfordbiblechurch.co.uk or by calling 01865 515 086.